moments to the Lord in prayer. God and Father, we just thank you for bringing us all together. We just thank you for the words that you've given me to say. And Lord, if there's anything I've misunderstood or I misrepresent, please pray that you will, people will forget it. But Lord, if there is something that you want to say this morning, that you will make it clear in people's hearts as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we're back in Hebrews again today. And we're following on from where um, Andy left us last week. And we've, I've been singing to enthusiasm. I try not to. I should learn. Uh, singing too enthusiastically is not a good thing. If you've got to get up and speak a few minutes later. <laughs> yeah, Andy left. Uh, we're picking up in chapter 9 of, of Hebrews. And it's... Now, this is one of those times when you realize that the guy who decided where all the chapters are in the Bible was riding around, the, at the time he was doing it, he was actually riding around the country on a horse. And, 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 and I think at this point, his horse would have hit, must have hit a rock or something because chapter 9 really doesn't need to be a separate chapter. It really follows on quite smoothly from chapter 8 with no real break, but never mind, we have a chapter break, but there you go. And it just really emphasizes and elaborates on what, what the writer to the Hebrews started at the end of chapter 8. So, Anyway, last week Andy took us through that chapter and explained how God, through Jesus, established a new covenant uh, which replaced the old one. And chapter 8 of Hebrews is, is an important message. It it's really sets out the foundation for that relationship, that the covenant is just another word for a relationship, an agreement that sits between us and God right now as Christians. And the author is continuing on, on on this in chapter 19. He's still making comparisons between what the old relationship was like and the new one is now. But he's getting into more of the detail of the comparison between the tabernacle, which was the image that God had given the children of Israel, and the, the full reality, on the other hand, of the throne of God in heaven, as we experience it now. So we're going to get into a little bit of that detail today. So forgive me, but that's what the chapter says, so that's what we're going to do. And it builds on as I said, what Andy said last week. So hopefully you've still got the notes that Andy gave you. I'm afraid I don't, I, I don't get organized enough to do notes in advance, so I was still writing this last night, but never mind. I'm sure you'll remember, uh, you'll remember it well, I'm sure. Um, you may want to follow along with your Bibles. I'm going to be dipping in and out, so if you have your Bibles open, it would be helpful. Um, but the writer begins this way in verse 1 of chapter 9, and he says, now, the first covenant. Well, actually... It's not the very first covenant. It's uh, the covenant with Moses he's talking about. The very first covenant was with Adam, of course, and then with Noah, and then with Abraham. There were different covenants that expanded, but the first covenant generally is talked about is, is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses. Anyway, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. And another word for sanctuary is holy place. There's a place set aside that's dedicated to God. And then he explains in verse 2, he says, for a tabernacle was set up. Now, we'll carry on in the passage in a minute, but I think we'd better explain about this picture of the tabernacle, or a tent. I'm sure lots of you will understand this already. Many of you, I'm sure, know about the tabernacle in detail, but if you don't, it can get a bit confusing. So, the tabernacle that we're talking about it was set up when um, Israel was wandering around in the desert, and it was a temporary structure that was put up and taken down and moved. And it was a, wasn't particularly large for that reason. It had to be carried about, probably on camels or donkeys. And this shows, the, this slide we've got shows the whole 
tabernacle complex, as the book of Exodus describes it. There was a courtyard, a big white um, fenced-off area, um, uh, and that contained the altar. And this was for the normal people to come, and this was as close as they could get um, into the sanctuary. Anyone who wasn't a priest was allowed into that courtyard around the altar. But then the priests could enter that tent at the far end, at one end of the content. And that tent isn't very big at all. It was only 45 feet long and about 15 feet wide. It would easily fit into here, into this room in Regent Chapel here. So you may remember when we were looking at the book of Exodus a few, uh, couple of years ago, Andy marked out the size and the shape of the, te- of the tabernacle on the floor here with hazard tape. Uh, and you might remember that if you were around at the time. And you may remember that there were only two rooms in that tent, and the author is going to describe them to us in this passage. And then this next picture shows those two rooms, that tent, what's inside the tent. The larger first room is 30 feet long by 15 feet wide, and the smaller room at the back can only be entered from the first room, and it's 15 feet square, tiny. So as we read the text now, just keep that image in your mind as we're reading, and we'll refer back to it. So going back to verse 2, it says, A tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, and that's often called the showbread or the bread of the presence. And this was called the holy place. So that's that 30-foot by 15-foot initial area. And this larger room in the tent is called the holy place. And then moving on to verse 3, he says, Behind the second curtain was a room, called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies, as it's sometimes referred to. And that had a golden altar of incense and a gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And I should add that I'm using the NIV translation here. It's a bit of a controversy, a bit of discrepancy here. The NIV and a lot of common modern versions say the golden altar of incense there. But the King James and some other translations talk about the golden censer, which was just something from which a bit of incense was taken and put into and carried which makes a little bit more sense. And that seems like a bit of a translation issue. Definitely something going on in terms of translation, perhaps between the Hebrew and the Greek, because Exodus 40 talks about this censer being what's in the Holy of Holies. It's not really important for what Hebrews 9 is trying to say in the message this morning, but it's one of those discrepancies that, that internet atheists love to pick up and go on, oh, you see, the Bible's a load of rubbish because it it's not consistent. Well, it, it's a translation issue, possibly, It's very, very minor, and I thought I'd mention it now, because if anyone's following this up, we've got to just acknowledge it and move on, because it really doesn't matter. We believe the Bible is inspired by God and is infallible. It doesn't contain mistakes, but men are most definitely fallible. So translation between Greek and then Hebrew and into English across time occasionally throws up these kind of anomalies. There are a few sprinkled across the hundreds and hundreds of pages of the Bible. None of them are significant the overall understanding of Scripture, or even understanding the meaning of the smaller passages that they're involved in. None invalidate our assumption that Scripture was inspired by God and is inerrant. It doesn't make mistakes. And the fact that there are so few, and they are so unimportant, like this one, really goes to show what a good job translators have done over the years. Now, God has protected his word. And in in the opposite of what these nitpickers would say, oh, it's unreliable. It is incredibly reliable. It is very reliable in comparison to any other historical text that we've got. And the, the fact there are so few just en- en- emphasizes that actually in comparison to any other historical text, where there are many, very many discrepancies, 
it is really incredible. The New, thousand, New Testament has tens of thousands of copies of manuscript, handwritten copies in existence, some of which go back to just within a few years of the original text. There's a fragment of Mark's Gospel that dates back to around 65 AD or so, and it really can't be very long after the original was written. Now, you might think, well, so what? But the next most reliable text that we have, ancient text, is a copy of Homer's Odyssey, which was written originally, the guess, around 800 BC or something. That only has something like 800 surviving manuscript copies compared to the tens of thousands. It, it's an order of magnitude of 100 greater the New Testament is reliable that we know that what we have in front of us, the text we have in front of us compared to what the original authors wrote down, it is 10, it is, what's that, 10 to the factor 3, so a thousand times more reliable than the next best historical document they have, which happens to be Homer's Odyssey, and many times more than many other doc documents that people say are good history, like, I don't know, Julius Caesar's History of the Gallic Wars or something that's a contemporary. Many, many thousands of times more reliable and only very few minor discrepancies. So it's a little bit of a soapbox I'm on here, but I just thought it was important because this is just one of those little, um, little things that, it's, that come up from time to time. Nothing comes remotely close to the Bible. Atheists are just, if any atheist ever or anyone tries to say, oh, well, I can't, we can't rely on the Bible because it's been discrepancy, they're on a complete loser if they push that button because it's just rubbish, absolute rubbish, and it shows they know nothing about the subject they're talking about. <laughs> so if you're going to claim the New Testament isn't reliable, you've got to claim every other historical document on which our history of this Western Europe is based is unreliable, much more so. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Anyway, favorite subject, I'll get off it now. <laughs> Anyhow. So, next slide then. This ark contained a gold jar of manna, air and staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. <laughs> That's what the text said. So, inside the ark of the covenant was a jar with some of the manna from the ground that God had fed the, the people of Israel of in the wilderness, and of course, air and staff. And again, without getting into the detail, we'll, uh, that had budded and, and, and at a time when there was some discrepancy, who had the, who had the right to come before God, and it was a, used as a sign. And also, of course, the tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments that were written in stone. Now, papyrus was around at the time, and, and hides and, and, and um, uh, uh, parchment were used to write on, and clay tablets, all sorts of things could have been used to write on, but the Ten Commandments were written in stone. And if stone's protected from the elements, it lasts forever. So all the things that evidence this relationship, the covenant that God had established between himself and the children of Israel were popped in that box. Then, as it says in verse 5, the box containing these things was crowned by the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Now that description is all that we have, really. We don't exactly know what the carving of the cher cherubim looked like. I don't know what pops into your head when we talk about cherubim. Maybe it's those little tiny babies with wings and, that you see on Valentine's Day cards and so on that are sometimes called cherubs, and forget that. They're just pagan invention. They're, they're actually called putti, really. They, they, they aren't anything to do with real spiritual beings or anything Christian, really. Just forget that imagery. Real cherubim are majestic angels. In fact, they're downright scary. It's probably a cherubim that it may well have been a cherubim that held a flaming sword that prevented Adam and Eve getting back into the Garden of Eden. If you realize, I always assumed it was, but it's perhaps a bit of an assumption, but it's probably a fair assumption. 
And you can read Ezekiel chapter 10 if you really want to freak yourself out about how imposing and intimidating, downright scary, a, cher a real cherubim, if you're ever faced with one, can be. Now these carved images of cherubim were overshadowing or bending over like they're portrayed in the picture over the mercy seat, that area at the top of the ark where God came and centered his presence. Now the writer says he isn't going to speak in detail of these things, so tempting as it is to go on and on, on another sidetrack, I won't either. Um, and we'll look at verse 6 here. So, when everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. So he's saying how during the Mosaic Covenant times, so that the time from the revelation of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai until the time in which he's writing now in the first century AD, when Jesus has come, the priests would go regularly into the tent, or as it later became the, the, the um, temple, so the ho to the holy place, that 30 by 15 outer room performing their duties on a daily basis. And they had things they had to do in there. They had to go in and make sure that the, the candlestick, the menorah, was still burning brightly, top up the oil. On the Sabbath, on the seventh day, they'd, they'd replace the, the showbread so that it would stay fresh. And, um, and it, it was a picture of God's light being present and God's sustenance being present in, in fellowship with, with his people. But then he goes on to say here in verse 7, that uh, uh, in, in the, into the second place, uh, sorry, he goes into saying in verse 7 that we're going into the, the second place, the Holy of Holies. So on the next slide, please. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. So we've got the priest going in daily into the outer room, then in this inner sanctuary, the 15 by 15, the small place with all these precious things that show God and his love and his presence with his people, that could only happen once a year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he'd go twice on that one day. 364 days of the year, nobody would go in at all. It would be set up and left. Probably get pretty dusty, I imagine. It would be left. They never went in there. And the only person who did go there on that one day was the high priest, and he went in twice. And as it says, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had, had been committed in ignorance. Before he could go in and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice for the sins of the people, he had to go in first and sprinkle blood for his own sins. He, was, he had to sanctify himself, make himself holy before he could represent the people. He had to take care of his own issues because he was a sinner himself. And then he'd go back and he'd get the blood of the sacrifice and make atonement for the rest of the nation. But nobody else was ever allowed into the Holy of Holies ever on pain of death. Quite literally, pain of death. And that's why the author says this in verse 8. He says, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. And then he goes into verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time, he says. Now, I want you to notice in verse 8, the writer says that this picture of the tabernacle, which God took great pains to, to give to you and to me and related to what Jesus ultimately did, it's a picture. He says it's an illustration for the present time. Now, what's interesting to me, or I discovered under a study, the Greek word that's translated here as illustration is the same that we use for parable. It's actually parabole. Close, about as close as you can get. Not, I'm not a Greek scholar, I'm afraid. This is all just what I've read. But even I can understand that translation. Parabole, it means parable. 
So the tabernacle is a parable. It's a story with a meaning. It's a story with a point. It's an illustration. So throughout the Old Testament, it's God inspiring Moses and the prophets and the other authors of the Old Testament to tell a story. And it's a story about a greater reality, the story behind the story. It's not just history. It's not just poetry. There's a meaning behind it that they perhaps didn't even perceive fully themselves at the time. And it's amazing because it's a story they just didn't get it. And it was only millennia after that the revelation came along that this is why they were doing that. And it makes so much more sense. And it's only becoming clear now uh, as, as the writer to the Hebrews is picking apart. Well, this, is, this picture, this task that the priest did daily and the, the, priest, the high priest did twice a year, well, once a year on this anniversary of the atonement, this is why. And it's amazing. And the parable, the picture that's being told by God is that the way to God is closed. You can't go there. Don't go there. It's forbidden. It's not for you. And it's a message that's repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The way is closed. If you look, you want to talk to God? No, sorry. You can't go into his presence. Only that it's so precious, it's so difficult, you're so sinful, once a year, high priest only. You remember what God said to Moses that to tell people when he was about to give them the Ten Commandments. God spoke the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. They heard the voice of God, and it freaked them out, frankly. But they heard the voice of God, and then let me remind you what God said. Exodus chapter 19, verse 23. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. Nobody approaches God except those few he chooses, like Moses and Aaron. Nobody approaches God. And then again, when Joshua leads the people into the promised land, they're getting ready to cross the Jordan, cross the river, and the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And remember how that all went. And let's look at Joshua 3, verse 3. When they see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you're to move out from your position and to follow it. And then you'll know which way to go since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Don't go near it. Well, a cubit is about the length of your forearm, about 18 inches or so thousand yards away from the ark the people had to stay over half a mile they couldn't weren't allowed within half a mile of the ark that was the holy of holies that represents god's presence don't come near you can see it at a distance but don't come near don't come even vaguely near god's presence uninvited you get the message you see the parable you see the story that's being repeated over and over and there are many more instances stay back don't come near don't do it don't even try so how does that differ from the covenant that we are under today? Let's look at Matthew 27, verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave it up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, that inner sanctum. And again, now at this time, it was a temple rather than the tabernacle because people had been living in Jerusalem permanently. But... It was the same image, the same parable. It was torn in two. There's another story for you. There's another parable. That image of that curtain, that barrier being ripped apart. No man near it. It was a tall thing, as the picture shows. It was something that a human being wouldn't clamber up there and try and rip. It's just not possible. It was God that did it. And God's now saying, from the moment of Christ's death, the way is open. It was closed before. 
There were cherubim there with flaming swords in effect. You're not going anywhere near this. It was closed. But now it's open and I've done it. What made the difference? Jesus cleansed the worshipper able to enter. He took the place of that twice, that sacrifice that the high priest did for himself and did for the people. Jesus paid the price. He paid your price. Now you can come in to the Holy of Holies. Do you want to come in with meet with God? Just come. And can you imagine what it was like for the priests of the holy place at that time? If they were there when that curtain was ripped down the middle, this thick thing, not just a flimsy curtain like we've got up at the windows here, it was four inches thick. It was felted heavy material that was four inches thick that had stood there for generations. Ten centimeters in modern money. No mere man could have torn that. So do you call what it says earlier in Hebrews, chapter, chapter 4, verse 16. We looked at this a good while ago. Let's then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, that's an invitation that no one in the Old Testament ever received. You want to come with me with God? Yes, sure, come on in. The way is now open. We've got a green light. We're free now. You want to meet with God? Curtain's been removed. It's been ripped. It's not going to go back together again. It's split down the middle. You can now enter the Holy of Holies. But I'm not a priest. doesn't matter. You're a child of God. You've been made clean now. You're now fit to come into the Holy of Holies, whoever you are, the whosoever you are. How we take this for granted today. We could go back in time and and live through just a week or so of living and relating to God under the old covenant and what we had to do then and all the cleansing and the ritual and the difficulty and the stuff to remember and organize. We'd be so desperate to get back to 2023, I'm sure. Now, there was another problem with the old covenant, and that was about what it couldn't do. Look at me now at the end of verse 9, and it says, this is an illustration for the present time, as we said, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. He calls all of these things regulations until the time of the new order. Well, the Reformation, as the ESV puts it, although perhaps different understanding of that word, this new order, this new covenant. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that the old covenant was directed at those things which are external regulations for the body, things you could wash away from the outside, stuff you ate and what you drank that you put into your body. But the old covenant didn't make any provision for the heart. It couldn't affect the heart. It was external. It wasn't internal. The heart is how we feel inside, how we behave, who we are inside. So the writer is saying that this was one of the issues with the Old Covenant. It only dealt with those external things, the things out there. And it didn't deal with the things in here, me. So let's look quickly at Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. See the difference? The Old Covenant couldn't deal with that inner man. God foreshadowed it, he promised it, and under the new covenant, we have something specifically designed to deal with the inner man. And when you and I focus on externalities and 
We do this new, the new covenant a huge disfavor. When we worry too much about, much about what we look like, or how we sound, how we appear to other people, when we try to be anything but honest about ourselves. You know, when I was a kid, everyone wore their Sunday best to church. I had to come in a tie and jacket. I'm allergic to ties. I just hate them. But girls had to wear their best dresses, and we all had to, what utter nonsense. Now, no one, none of that matters. Sure, it doesn't cause a lot of offense to wear. People like dressing up. Absolutely no problem with that. But it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I'm so glad so much of that nonsense is ancient history these days. What a distraction. What a disservice to the gospel. But it's human nature. It comes back in other ways. The idea is somehow we can do something to, to, to make God love us more. That if we, if we don't you know, demonstrate our respect by dressing in a particular way, he's going to think less of us. Or whatever that might be. However that might manifest. The tendency to think we need to do something. There must be something I have to do to earn what God has given us freely. But it's so much wrong, so garbage. We need to take that thought captive. We need to live in the truth of God's word. The new covenant is all about change from the inside. That eventually impacts on our outside. It may change the way we dress or behave or whatever, but it's the real change on the inside that matters. It's just a symptom, and faking it misses the point. So the new covenant is internal. It deals with the heart, that internal thing. So then in verse 11, going back to Hebrews, the author connects with all of this stuff, the tabernacle, the old covenant, and the new covenant, and he connects that with the work of Jesus in heaven. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by human hands, that is to say it's not part of his creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. In other words, what he's saying is that Jesus not only operates in a superior sanctuary, not one built with human hands, the tabernacle was only a picture of the reality in heaven, not the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, but his own blood by which he makes peace between God and man. And this is really vital. And what's this particularly vital here is this one phrase, a very specific phrase he mentions concerning that sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus was once for all. You catch that? It's right there at the beginning of verse 12. He enters the most holy place once for all. And those words, I don't know if I can emphasize them enough. They are so important. In fact, they should be probably highlighted in your Bible. If you've got your Bible, stick a line underneath it. Fix it in your mind. Jesus made his sacrifice once for all. Because this is in contrast to the Old Testament. You have to go, as we said, repeatedly, annually, daily, and sacrifice blood of goats and bulls and all sorts of things in a model of heaven, an image, a shadow, a crude model of that, of heaven. And that repetition, the fact that the high priest had to do it again and again and again, hundreds if not thousands of times it was performed. And that reason that you had to, it had to be done again was because it didn't get the job done completely. It was incomplete. It was inadequate. It was all that was available, but it wasn't enough to do it permanently. When you have to do something repeatedly, it kind of tells you something, doesn't it? How many of you, you got, on your homework, used to get a C minus, do again? I know in red pen on my exercise bet, we took going, I'm sure there'll be a bit of that going on next week as we all go back to school. I used to get it plenty. Having to repeat your homework meant it wasn't good enough. 
your answers weren't sufficient. They didn't meet the grade. You've got to keep doing it again until your homework's good enough to pass and to get a good mark. Jesus made his sacrifice once for all. Look again what it says in verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkle on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly unclean. Again, that's going back to talking about the outer man. How much more then, though, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? You see, we're all doing this contrasting again. Under the old covenant, the outer man could be cleansed and made holy through those rituals. How much more, though, Will the inner man be transformed, forgiven, cleansed, washed, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ in comparison? I'm going to sneak an extra verse in here because all of these 14 verses have been leading up to this punchline for verse 15. So sorry, Andy, for pinching some of your thunder for next week, but it's good. It doesn't matter if we hear it twice. It's good stuff. So verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. I know it's a bit of a wordy verse. As a summary, it doesn't really summarize. But when you read it, it might be a little confusing because of that. But it's important we understand that it, it, it emphasizes the superiority of what Jesus, our high priest, has done. How much better the new covenant is now than the old covenant ever was. Obviously, he's talking about the death of Jesus, dying for us on the cross, by which he redeemed us from our sins. Jesus came and died to pay for the sins committed before. It's not just those of us born in modern times, in AD times, post-Christ. It's all those who lived before Jesus' time too, BC, before Christ. All those who committed sins under the old covenant, Jesus' sacrifice is so good, it transcends time. And you see, this is really important because Paul actually addresses this issue and he writes to the Romans. Third chapter of Romans, he writes and he reminds us and he says, verse 23, for those who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement for the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to de demonstrate righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Sins committed before Christ were unpunished. Are you with me now? Put this in the form of a question. Let's say you live before Christ. Your question is, okay, so if I go before the Lord and I bring a sheep or a goat or whatever and I confess my sin, confess my sin before God and I offer this sacrifice, will I be forgiven? Answer, yes. You'll be forgiven under the old covenant. You would be forgiven. But here's the next question. Will my sin actually be punished? And the answer is no, because a goat can't be punished for you. It's a goat, or a sheep, or a bull, or a dove, or whatever. The animal was sacrificed as a picture again. It wasn't the reality. It was reminding the worshiper that a sacrifice is necessary, that a blood sacrifice is necessary, that a life must be given, but the goat's life, or whatever, wasn't sufficient. It was an animal for punishment. It's a reminder of that. But the wages of sin is death. So when Paul says at the end of that passage in Romans that in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, that's how they hadn't been punished. The sacrificed animal hadn't been punished. It had just brought the sinner time 
as he acted in faith, waiting until the perfect sacrifice would come along many centuries perhaps later. The sinner hadn't been punished, they'd just been forgiven. But now comes the cross, and punishment has taken place. It's done. Not only are we forgiven, but our sins have been punished, and now theirs have been punished too at the same time. So why is that important? Why am I making that distinction? Why have I pinched one of Andy's verses to finish off the message? I mean, if they were forgiven back under the old covenant, why was it even important for the punishment bit to happen? Or for even to know that the sins had been punished? Well, when the writer made a comment earlier about clearing the conscience of the worshipper, did you remember that? It was back in verse 9. I won't read it again, but if you just look back in verse 9, you'll remember he said how the sacrifices under the old covenant can't perfect the conscience of the worshipper. Oh, again, in verse 14, let me read, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Why is that important? How does that purify our conscience when the old covenant couldn't? The old sacrificial system couldn't clear the conscience of the worshipper. Ours has been clean under the new, co- the new covenant. Why? Because our sin has been punished. You see? That's why the sacrifice of the old covenant could not perfect the conscience of the worshipper. Yes, I'm I'm forgiven, but my sin hasn't been punished. If we've done wrong and received our just punishment, then our conscience is relieved. I think just about every parent in this room probably knows what I'm talking about right now. And if you've been a kid, perhaps, which everyone has been, perhaps you remember that time. You do something wrong, your kid does something wrong. You get a punishment, you get a few minutes on the naughty step or a smack bum or whatever. And they're sorry. And all is well with the world again. And it's made right. It's been fully paid for. Your conscience is clear because you've done, you've made amends. Connection is restored. Love is returned. The law and the animal sacrifices couldn't do that. It, couldn't promise forgi- it could promise forgiveness, but it couldn't punish sin. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, our sin has been punished. And it means Jesus paid the price, and now we have a clear conscience because he has paid our price. We can enter the Holy of Holies with a clear conscience because we deserve to be there, not through our own actions, but through Christ's actions. We deserve to be here. Can you believe? And somehow we have to understand that. And knowing we deserve to be here in presence of God, we don't have to have a conscience about it. It's one of the things that enables us to enter the Holy of Holies with joy. I'm not just forgiven, it's all over. The punishment phase is over, it's done. John 19, verse 30, up on the screen for you. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. As Jesus said, it is finished. That's what he was declaring on the cross. The punishment phase is finished, finally. After hundreds, if not thousands of years, it is finished. The words, it is finished, again, another Greek translation, and again, one I've read in a book, but it's teta, I can't even pronounce it, tetelestai. Tetelestai, I'm told, is the word Greek translation or the Greek original that this is translated from. It was used all the time in everyday life when a servant would complete a task for their master and he'd come back to his master and say, Tetelestai, what you've asked me to do is finished. It's complete. When an artist or a writer produced a work and he was satisfied with, he'd say, Tetelestai, it is finished. 
in the marketplace when a merchant had received the full price for something that was paid. Maybe the buyer was taking a little while to pay for it. When he paid for it all, he was selling, what he was selling, he'd say to the buyer, Tetelestai, it's paid in full. It's finished. It's done. And because Jesus paid our debt and it's finished, our conscience is now clear and the penalty phase is over. There's no more punishment to be meted out. Nothing more. Christians, hear me, there is no more punishment. It's been consumed in the person of God's precious Son. It's been consumed. He consumed it all. There's no more punishment to be had. We may go through difficult times, lose loved ones, lose our jobs, fall ill. None of that is punishment for sin. It's the consequence of living in a fallen world. It's not punishment for sin. Sometimes there may be consequence for sinful acts, but it's not punishment. The punishment is finished. It was over at the cross for the past and for the future. Do you believe what Jesus said? It is finished. Do I take him at his word? It is finished. Thank you, Jesus, is the response we need today. You know, I really wish Christians would get this in their hearts because it sets you free. It sets you free to become God before God with a clear conscience. It is finished. Jesus did it. It's done. It's past. It's over. Lord, you consume my punishment. And now you've been raised from the dead and new life is mine. The hope of eternal life is mine. And I have a clear conscience. Hallelujah. Well, thank you for listening this morning. If you'd like personal prayer around anything that I've talked about, as God has been speaking to you in your heart, then, or anything at all that's been going on in your life this week, Joel and Claire are available here at the front for you to pray with you. Was it Joel or is it Paul? Paul. I think it would be a change of personnel. Paul and Claire are going to be pray, available to pray with you. So for now, let's close in prayer together before I hand back to Rachel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word describes your relationship with us for thousands of years. Thank you for your plan of salvation that frees us all. Thank you that on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for all our sin and released us so that we can enjoy your presence forever. Help us to know that for certain, deep within our hearts. Help us to stand against the evil one when he tempts us to think that what you did at Calvary was not enough, and we're somehow not, still not worthy. Even when you have declared that we are, it is finished. Lord, we just thank you for that. We ask those that here that don't know you, we pray you reach into their hearts and help them to see your love for the truth that it is, and to accept you. For we ask all this in Jesus' name, the one who's done it all. Amen. Amen.